Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Twenty-eight-year-old Jennifer Brea is working on her Ph.D. at Harvard and soon to be engaged to the love of her life when she gets a mysterious fever that leaves her bedridden and looking for answers. Disbelieved by doctors and determined to live, she turns her camera on herself and her community, a hidden world of millions confined to their homes and bedrooms by ME, commonly called chronic fatigue syndrome. The film is called Unrest, and the director, Jennifer Brea, is here with us to share her story, personal story, as well as her story as a filmmaker. Jennifer, welcome to Film School. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Thank you. Well, um, you know, I generally would ask people at this point, how did you decide to do this documentary? What prompted you to do this? Um, I think I basically explained that in the intro, but... Was there a moment when you felt the, the, this desire to begin to use your iPhone to document what was going on in your life? Which is, an under, yeah, I can understand people wanting to do that, but you took it further. Uh, was there a moment when you decided this is something that I, you really needed to pursue as a bigger project than a, a personal diary? Well, I, I I think that the personal diary part is important because it it sort of um, I had always been in love with film and had um, you know grew up watching going to cinema and watching probably about three or four movies a weekend with my mom. Um, I saw everything in wide release um, uh, for about a decade and really loved film um, and also loved novels and and for me stories were a way of how I you know, interpreted my own experience and learned about the lives of others um, and came to understand myself. And um, when I first got sick, I was dealing with what was the most life-changing and difficult experience I had ever encountered. And suddenly, um, not only did I find that in our culture, um, there were so few stories, stories that might have prepared me and helped me understand you know, what it is to get sick when you're young, what it is to grapple with a chronic illness. And so I, I had never heard of anything like this happening before. And so there, there was that kind of feeling of, of, of feeling like I didn't have a, a story, a reflection of this kind of experience in the culture. And then um, very soon after I became bedridden with Emmy, um, I lost the ability to read or write. Like if I would try to write a sentence of an email, I would pass out from the exertion. Mm -hmm. And so as someone who had always written and journaled to sort of understand what I was thinking and feeling, the the sort of thing that I always had um, um, to rely on um, wasn't there for me. So um, I picked up my iPhone instead. And initially when I was capturing the footage, I had no intention of you know, making a feature documentary. Um, A friend of mine actually had had recommended I record myself because he thought, well, Maybe one day, maybe one day you'll write a book about it, and at least this way you'll have a record of, you know, what you were feeling, what you were experiencing in the moment. And so, if anything, I was thinking, okay, maybe someday I'll write a book. Um, and I think the the, the decision to, to actually take the footage and try to make something with it came into two two steps. Um, one, I remember being in the doctor's office 
um, as to, I was seeing a new doctor and I was trying to explain to him some of my symptoms. And so, you know, I would tell him, you know, last night I tried to get up out of bed and I walked to the bathroom and I came back and I just collapsed on the floor and I couldn't lift my head. I don't know why that happened. And he wasn't paying any attention to me. He was sort of looking at his chart and just sort of writing down notes. Um, and uh, I took out my phone and I said, no, look, this is what happened last night. And he looked at this video that I had captured and kind of turned white and suddenly um, this kind of situation that he wasn't taking seriously became serious. And he started saying, you know, he had an MRI, he had a spinal tap, I don't know what is going on, but something is clearly wrong with you. And, you know, it, it kind of gave me that insight that this experience that um, I had been living ever since um, the, my onset after a high fever, um, I had been trying to explain in words what was going on, and words failed. Every time I tried to explain to doctors, um, uh, it, it was almost like they couldn't conjure images in their heads. Um, and it, 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 it gave me the insight that maybe this had to be a film, and maybe if I could take people inside of our homes and bedrooms and into these really intimate and difficult moments that most people don't get to see, that maybe that could start to change everything. Hmm. Well, and part of this journey, uh, the film, with the film Unrest, has been um, your own personal experience, as well as beginning to understand and reach out to others who are also suffering from, from this. Uh, there had to be a point where, was there, or were there support groups that you became aware of? What was it that, that sort of cracked the door open for you to try to pull other people into, if not the film, certainly to, to, as a sort of a community of people who are dealing with this? Well, I think it's worth backing up and just explaining kind of how, like, how I got sick and what happened. Sure. Because I, I think um, people don't always understand kind of what happens when yeah. you get this disease in terms of finding that support and those answers. Um, I was uh, traveling with my husband, and we both got um, a virus, and um, uh, he got better, and I didn't. And um, I I don't, um, uh, I had a very high fever, and it it triggered something in my immune system that um, over time started to present itself as neurological symptoms, um, and, and metabolic symptoms, and so sometimes I would lose the ability just to, to, to speak, um, even though I can understand. I would have like something called expressive aphasia, um, and I and I every time I got even the smallest infection, I would crash in bed and end up in bed for for days or weeks. And I didn't understand what was going on um, because they kept going to doctors and they kept telling me, you know, your labs are coming back normal, so um, you uh, you know nothing's wrong with you essentially. And um, it was because I think I didn't have, you know, a, a clear diagnosis or um, really, you know, the experience of being taken seriously um, as I was getting worse and worse and worse and worse and eventually became bedridden that I did go online and started to try to find answers. And I actually remember the, the very first time I, you know, I, I thought maybe it was chronic fatigue syndrome simply because I had looked at like every possible thing and it was the only um, uh, diagnosis that fit my symptoms and my onset and at the same time I thought well but I'm so sick like how could it possibly be that thing um, but then I started to look at forums and um, look at YouTube videos people had posted and I remember, that, I remember there was this one video of this woman who 
was um, laying in bed, and it's someone that I actually know now who's been you know, bedridden for um, you know decades, and and she um, you know was laying was, was there kind of barely able to find the force to speak, and I was looking at her, and I said that that's me, like that's what happens to me when I move too much or I use my voice too much, and so um, it was really through that community that I started to um, you know be able to start to find specialists. And, and help, real help, um, but also that I started to develop the film because I met people who had been sick for decades and who had been fighting for decades for recognition and basic access to care, um, and some of these incredible stories in the film, um, both the human stories as well as, as sort of stories of injustice, and, um, and that's how I sort of really took the online community came to frame this as a social justice issue and also yeah. came to find the people that I later included in the film. We're speaking with uh, Jennifer Brea. She's the director of the documentary Unrest. For people who are interested in finding out more about it, you can go to unrest.film and find out more. There's, in addition to the trailer and information about the film, there's also call to action for people. Um, there are all kinds of resources available, uh, increasingly more so, um, because of the work of Jennifer and others in the in this uh, realm. But certainly been uh, an uphill battle to get the medical establishment to begin to see this as something more than a psychological disorder, which is initially for a lot of people who may be old enough to remember. What was it called? The yuppie flu at one point. Uh, something uh, sort of dismissive. It sounds dismissive anyway when you put it in those terms of it. And uh, but because of the work of uh, Jennifer and others, uh, the medical establishment may be paying a little more attention to to this disease. Tell me a little bit about sort of how uh, you were able to do the film, sort of in the logistics of it. You were able to direct the film there sort of came in stages tell me a little bit about how that came about so i was completely bedridden like let's say 95 percent bedridden during most of production and um it was a real challenge to try to figure out how to tell the story um i just sort of knew that it had to happen somehow and so i started to um you know go out and try to find um, collaborators people to work with and one of the things that happened early on was we did a big Kickstarter campaign um, in the early days before we started um, shooting the, the, the film. Um, but we were shooting a trailer for, like, a, a, an appeal and a trailer um, to raise the protection funds. And so I would go and travel. I was living in Princeton, New Jersey at the time. And I would travel one hour from Princeton to New York to shoot interviews in a studio all day and then, you know, drive back. Um, after a 12-hour day, and I would be in bed, you know, for the next 29 days. Mm. And so to shoot six days took six months. Huh. And there, you know, we were using at the time something called an iPad teleprompter, which is um, essentially an iPad that sits in a bed that can have, you know, whatever image, you know, in it, and then that gets reflected over a camera lens. And so if I were to call it on Skype, you would see my image over the lens, and it would give you this sort of eye contact, the sense of eye contact between me and the person I'm talking to, and so therefore with the audience. And um, it, it sort of occurred to me, like I had chosen it for aesthetic reasons, and it occurred to me like, oh, if I can Skype into these interviews and still record them to 
you know, our, our, our camera, um, I don't have to come. I can stay at home and interview people anywhere in the world. And so that's what I started doing. And, and that was the first kind of um, hack, I guess, around my disability and my, my, my lack of mobility. And then the second hack was um, we found uh, um, something called a Teradec, which is, you know, it's a sort of this, this, this uh, um, tool that compresses and streams, um, live streams, whatever the camera is seeing and recording, um, you know, up, up into a, a secure feed on the Internet. So I was able to watch with like a 30-second delay um, whenever the crews were, you know, on set and, and, and uh, recording and had access to, you know, mobile or Wi-Fi. So it allowed me to have a certain amount of presence um, in the field mm-hmm. um, that would have been not have been possible otherwise. But, you know, it was also, you know, obviously a deep kind of creative collaboration and it took a lot of, um, I guess, trust and, and, and also iterations of, of working together to try to figure out, like, how do you shoot on three continents with three crews and um, uh, with a remote director and have it, you know, all kind of um, feel like it's of a piece and that it is a part of the same film. So it was a challenge, but, um, you know, disability, I think, is, is forces, forces you to be creative. Yeah. Well, what point in that process did you feel like you were uh, the director? Like, I, because you hadn't done this before, right? You hadn't made films before this. Is it, was there some, when you were, as you were going through all of this, at some point you had to have taken real ownership of your role as you're, you're the person. This is it. I'm going to make this happen. Was that, what was that like for you? I mean, I, I felt like I was the director from the moment I conceived of the film to the moment we, you know, uh, printed our UCP. Like, but there wasn't any moment when I didn't feel that way. Okay. I think the thing that was um, the challenge more was kind of mediating between myself as the director and filmmaker and the subject of the film. And it, it wasn't hard in the sense that I... Um, uh, it wasn't so hard as we were shooting because I think, you know, I, 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 always, I always wanted to sort of make sure that we were telling the truth in every moment. And by that I mean kind of capturing what was true, mm-hmm. being really open about um, you know, just not, not having any boundaries around what, what, what we would and wouldn't shoot with the knowledge that I could always make decisions later in the edit if there were things I didn't want to show or include, but to really try to capture life as we were living it and as it was. And... Um, the, the sort of, uh, I, I think the, the, the challenge really came more in the edit, and I think, I think the reason why it was hard is because I was living, I was living the story, and the, the spine of the film is really my journey, um, you know, as a, um, uh, a patient with this disease, um, and, you know, I, I kind of describe it, the arc of my arc in the film, as, you know, moving from someone who was really felt, you know, like a victim someone who was, who was disempowered and voiceless and someone who was a filmmaker and had found voice from someone who, um, you know, had really lost everything to someone who um, had, you know, was able to kind of construct a new life. And, um, and the hard part about it is that the end of the film didn't happen until, like, the edit, right? So and by, that, by that I mean, um, as we were shooting, I was still, you know, on a personal level just drowning, Right? And, and so I, I didn't know how the story was going to end as we were making it. And 
by the time we're in the edit, it was like it, it, it was sort of the process of coming to peace about um, and some type of resolution around how I felt about what had happened to me and, and the, the actual kind of structure of the film um, and, and the journey I go on. They were happening at the same time. So trying to figure out what I really felt about what had happened and how to include my voice and, um, and, and what my arc would be, I think that was the most challenging part because every t- at every moment I'm both living it and I'm trying to construct it you know, in a creative sense. Um, and I think, I think that's been the really interesting thing about this film. I mean, I'll probably never make a personal film again. Um, and, and the filmmaking was a part of the journey. Um, and, and so it, 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 that was a hard story to tell, but I'm so grateful that, um, that, it, that it was. Yeah, and, and another part, by the way, we're speaking with uh, Jennifer Brea. The film is Unrest. You can go to unrest.film to find out more about the film and where it's screening. And also, it, soon enough, I believe you're going to be available on a number of the platforms, the usual iTunes, right? Are we, are we moving? Yeah, so we'll, we'll, um, I mean, we're doing, uh, we're, we're, we're still playing in theaters, yeah. um, uh, and, and, and also are having community screenings all around the country um, and, and internationally as well. Um, and then we'll be... On um, uh, on iTunes uh, and, at a, at an, uh, and other digital platforms um, uh, in October and uh, uh, on PBS in January. And I believe you're currently in theaters as we are talking today um, in <clears throat> in Los Angeles area as well. Uh, for those yes. listening, how are you feeling? How are you? Are there? Th- I guess before I get to that, now that there's. Uh, you've helped raise awareness about this, about ME and chronic fatigue syndrome. Do you see movement within the medical establishment for therapies and, and, and things? Are we beginning to see progress in, in ways that make sense? I think that there is starting to be, be movement. I mean, I mean, first there has been an explosion Explosion might be too strong of a word because it, it, it suggests scale, but there have been, you know, a few groups at Columbia and Stanford and Harvard and UCSD and a few other places who have really started to take an interest in the, in the disease. And um, as a result, we're just learning more and more every year. And so um, the sort of scientific evidence space is becoming stronger and stronger. Um, the challenge is that there's, the funding is still not there and the commitment from the National Institutes of Health is still not there. So we're not getting the federal funding we need to really support um, a robust and vibrant field. And so it's just going extremely slow. Mm-hmm. And there are people who are very severely ill and really can't, can't afford to wait. So um, just to give you some mm-hmm. a sense of scale, you know, we get about, um, we've gotten for the last 10 years, about 5 or $6 million a year. Um, if you were to sort of look at everything at the NIH funds, we should be getting more like $250 million a year if you were to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of take into consideration how disabling the disease is and the fact that over a million people in the U.S. have it. So, so there's a lot of barriers there. I think the thing that's most hopeful is that the Centers for Disease Control very recently announced, so for, for decades, the, the kind of rule of thumb was the treatment for this disease is cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. um, which is a form of psychological therapy, and something called graded exercise. Um, which involves like increasing your activity um, or or your exercise um, in order to kind of get get better, with the idea that you're just deconditioned. And um, the science that that was based on has 
proven to have been um, faulty, uh, and so they've updated their recommendations, and now the CDC says, well, actually, we think exercise can not only not cure you, but actually it can be harmful, mm. um, and that it's a bit like, you know, giving sugar to a diabetic. So um, I was someone who was in a very mild, um, on a mild end of the spectrum, um, so, you know, if you're mild, you might um, still be able to work, but have to spend time, you know, in the evenings and weekends kind of resting to recuperate. Um, and the, the, the spectrum goes all the way to the very severe, where if you're very severe, you might be bedridden 24 hours a day, unable to tolerate light, sound, or touch. Mm. And um, a lot of people that I know of anecdotally, and this is my case as well, started off on the mild side because they continued to exert themselves physically to exercise and they're getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, and so I think, I think with this new, these new recommendations, we're going to be able to prevent a lot of unfortunate disability um, and help people to manage the condition better. But I think a cure um, or an FDA-approved treatment is still a long way off um, unless we can increase the investment in research. Have we, have we managed to push the perception, the the, uh, the science off the paradigm that this is all in your head? Would that is that something that we can safely say now? Or um, I, I would say that the science has been clear for probably a few decades that this is not quote in your head. The the challenge is that um, uh, so there's actually a study that showed that it takes about 20 years for um, for science to be translated into medical practice and, and disseminated. So um, it's a very complex process through which science becomes, gets translated into, you know, medical guidelines get, you know, then taught to doctors at conferences and at schools. So um, the, the clinicians, I think, you know, we're trying to get the word and, you know, radio and other media formats are sometimes faster ways to, to communicate that. But the the, the challenge really is now, I think, in the, in the translation and in the, and, and in the medical education so that clinicians can understand what this disease is, um, how to diagnose it, and how to, and how to care for patients. But the scientific consensus is that this is a disease that is usually triggered by an infection um, that causes severe metabolic abnormalities, including a decreased ability to essentially metabolize sugar to make energy. Um, and that um, uh, frequently, um, you know, and that it involves the immune system and the brain, and we can see we can see abnormalities in brain imaging and in immune profiles and in the microbiome. Um, and there also have have found in about between 25% and 40% of patients, depending on the study, um, autoantibodies, um, and that essentially means that you know it's it's possible. Um, I would say, personally, I think it's probable, probable that it's not an immune disease um, that has, for whatever reason, you know, like lupus or multiple sclerosis, that it's just, um, you know, kind of gone under the radar, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of diseases that they're, they're, the science is getting better about, but I just, I'm, I'm, as someone who's not a scientist or I'm not, I'm not an expert in any way in this field, it, it does seem like this sort of immune system breakdown is the is the uh, seems to be behind a lot of diseases that are not understood as as well as they could be and this one and I may be off saying this but this one feels as if that's part of that part of it part of the reason is our immune system 
for a lot of reasons, remains difficult to uh, solve. Is it? I think that's definitely the case. I think that, I, I mean, you know, in some ways the, the, the tools that we need to better understand the immune system in terms of our understanding of genomics and something called metabolomics, which is sort of the, the you know, the, the, the measure of the metabolic processes in your body and um, the, the sort of, you know, our kind of, essentially our ability to measure is constantly improving, and I think that we're now in a place where we can start to understand more about the immune system in general, but I think it was a really, like, neglected organ, if that makes sense, um, and, and, and I, I don't know the reasons why. But what I do know is that the autoimmune diseases, and, and I think we can kind of say immune diseases in general have been increasing. So yeah. since the 50s, um, various conditions like, you know, from um, uh, MS to Crohn's to autism have doubled to quintupled yeah. um, based on the best data that we have. Um, and it, it seems to be like these are increasing, um, and we don't know why. So I think more and more people are dealing with immune system-related diseases, and I think this one in particular just had, in somewhat, in some ways, the bad fortune of um, uh, a kind of history in the 80s of being uh, perceived as yuppie flu, of people just malingering, um, of why don't you just get over it, and 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 with this name, chronic fatigue syndrome, it sort of obscured the reality of the severity of the disease. But this disease is probably, you know, just in the same category as with others. Um, and you know, we we talked we were talking before about about sort of other diseases that are also sidelined, you know, like fibromyalgia or um, uh, chronic Lyme, you know, et cetera. So yeah. I, I think I think the thing that's important to understand is that these diseases are real um, and that they are becoming more prevalent. But also that we've done this before to other diseases. So multiple sclerosis used to be thought of as hysterical paralysis until the CAT scan made it possible to, you know, positively um, diagnose people. You know, there used to be this debate whether some forms of MS were hysterical versus, quote, real. Um, we used to put people with epilepsy into uh, mental institutions until the EEG was able to measure the abnormal um, electrical activity in their brains so that we could be able to understand, so that we were better able to understand why people had seizures. So. We have a very long history of doing this to diseases and we don't understand the cause and don't have clear treatments. And I think the thing that's important to understand is that science is always partial. Um, you know, we don't understand everything about the universe. Um, our understanding is always improving. But when we see somebody who is sick and, and they describe to us what their experience is, I think we have to, you know, in, in some ways, um, you know, uh, give them the benefit of the doubt and listen to what they're telling us and, and understand that, the pain that they're experiencing, um, you know, may be very real, whether or not we have the technology to measure it. <clears throat> and just as sort of a, a, a personal opinion, uh, not based in science so much as just sort of a sense of what's been happening, as you describe these different diseases, as they seem to be increasing for reasons that are difficult to understand, I keep coming back to this idea that our environment is in somehow, some way impacting us that we just can't quite quantify because we are, socially speaking, as a society, kind of a living, breathing 
science experiment with all the different kinds of chemicals that are constantly being introduced into our environment and to our food supplies and all of these different things, the interaction of all these things is nearly impossible to break down in such a specific way as to be able to identify it as the precursor, as the cause, as the accelerator in so many of those immune-related diseases. It's hard not to see the environment uh, as part of what is going on here with autism, with all these, uh, with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, all these different things. To me, that's what this feels like. We, we can't possibly understand the interaction of all of the different chemicals that we live with on a daily basis and, and be able to completely understand their impact on our health. Is that? Well, I mean, I, mean, you know, I think it's broader than, than that. And okay. so um, I think what I would say is that, you know, it's possible that all the chemicals have no effect and they're all fine. Um, it's possible that any of the, you know, it's like, it's, I think I can say without being, you know, having any evidence of being certain that our environment has changed dramatically. Yeah. And not just the, chem- the chemicals in our, in, our, in our food supply and in our air and our water, but also the way that we eat, um, the antibiotics that we take and what that does to our microbiome. Um, and, you know, even just, I mean, there are 52% fewer wild animals on the planet right. than in 1970s. So, like, we, we, we know we're, we're, we're in this sort of stage that people are calling the, the Anthropocene. So, basically, in 100 million years, whatever yeah. intelligent life form there is, yeah. it, if they go into the fossil record, they'll see this moment and they'll see the extinction of the dinosaurs. And they will be equally clear because of just how much has changed um, and, and, how, and how much kind of mass, um, you know, kind of death in the ecosystem has been. And so, you know, I think the thing that's hard is that we're talking about a lot of really complex interrelationships, right. Right. and um, and any one cause and effect is going to be really hard to pin down. Exactly. But we we've changed everything about our, our environments and how we live. And if we see these kind of chronic diseases that were never um, that we didn't have, you know, at, at this kind of scale and prevalence increasing. I think I think it, it must have to do with something that's changed yeah. in our environment, and the, the really hard question is trying to figure out what is doing that, and 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 what, if anything, we can do about it. Um, but I think the, the first step is just recognizing the problem, mm-hmm. um, and, and and understanding that the the sort of you know, and this is something that I, I I'm becoming to feel more and more passionate about, but that the the sort of you know the the environmental movement has to be framed in terms of humans because we're we're animals on this planet too, right. and if we're seeing like the ecosystem collapse and the, the sort of species collapse of all of these other life forms, we have to wonder well what then is our what, what effect is our behavior having on ourselves? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And this idea of and I hear this often from people like I don't believe in climate change. I don't believe that these things have an impact on us. You know. This is an irrelevant statement. <laughs> Whether you believe in something or not doesn't impact its its truthfulness or its its consequences. And I, I for whatever reason, we politically, socially, we can't seem to get past that. And instead of just trying to figure it out, it's now a matter of whether or not we believe in it. It's just. It's madness, and what you're, to me, that's what you're describing in a lot of ways. Um, one last element before we, we, we uh, wind down, and that is, uh, it's no small part of this um, story, I think, has to do with the fact that 80% or so, give or take, of people that have been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome are women. 
as we know from the history of medicine, going back to Sigmund Freud and well beyond past that and all these different aspects, women tend to be not taken seriously when they are talking about things that are actually happening. Just kind of your, your, your take on the sort of what impact the fact that most of the people that have had been diagnosed are women and it's being taken seriously as, as a disease. Well, there's a very long history of gender bias in medicine, and um, I think this does, you know, my story and the story of this disease definitely plays a role, or rather has played a role in in the disease. Um, You know, I mean, firstly, it's important to say that, you know, 20% of the people who have this disease are men, and so worldwide this disease affects millions of men. But I think the, the sort of perception of it as a women's disease and the fact that so many women are affected has definitely, um, sort of uh, made it easier to ignore what patients have been telling us all along. And I say that in part because when I first got sick and before I had a diagnosis, I was posting on Facebook um, and and I, I, I and sort of sharing with my Facebook friends, like, here is what is going on with me. I'm having these symptoms. I don't know why. And a part of it was the hope that maybe someone somewhere in their friend of friend network had a you know, a cousin who was a doctor who was like, oh, I know what that is. I've seen it before. And as I was doing this, I started to get all of these messages from, from friends, from, from people I don't in college. Um, I had one friend who had been diagnosed with a, a condition called interstitial cystitis and was in constant, unbelievable pain um, and was unable to get medi- be medicated for her pain because they didn't believe it. Um, and uh, I had another friend who was diagnosed with, with anxiety for, for years. Um, until eventually they finally did a thorough investigation and found that she had um, a brain tumor. And so I, 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 you know, and and on and on. And so you realize that it's not just about this disease, but that there are a lot of women who are having this experience across a range of conditions of going to their doctor and having their complaints dismissed as, I'm just overly concerned about my body or I'm paying too much attention to my symptoms or I'm just a little anxious, just a little achy. Um, and I think that that, you know, is related to these deep, you know, cultural ideas we have about um, women as, um, I guess, being, being more fragile in a way. Mm. Um, I also think our ideas about men being strong um, can, can also play into it. So, like, there's a, there's a study that shows that um, doctors are, are actually over, you know, tend to over-medicate men for their pain and under-medicate women mm. for it because when, they, when, when, when men say, you know, I, I'm. I, the, the assumption is that a man is is um, higher threshold, is downplaying his yeah, pain, yeah, whereas yeah. a woman is exaggerating it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, and one and and the TED talk that you gave. How? What kind of reaction did you get from that? Did you did you feel that that helped really push the ball forward? Because a lot of people t- put a lot of stock in TED, and um, as they should. I think in a lot of ways it's been a, a terrific platform for people to be heard and to bring up painful and sometimes awkward issues and uh, push that uh, push the agenda and the conversation forward. What was what's been the reaction to your? Oh, it's been incredible. I had um, I mean I think the the most valuable thing for me. People have been using able to use it as a tool, like patients who are advocates and able to use it as a tool when they're speaking with either congressional officials or trying to progress the medical education. So, like, that's been great. But I think the thing that's been really wonderful about that platform is 
you know, I was in um, in Melbourne, Australia, um, for our Australian premiere of Unrest, and um, there was a woman who came up to me afterwards um, who has a 12-year-old daughter who um, got sick last summer and was bedridden. And she said, you know, for months I had no idea what was going on. Doctors didn't know what was going on. And then my friend sent me this TED Talk. And I listened to your story, Jen, and and it was it was exactly what my daughter was going through. And so that allowed her to find a specialist and start to get treatment. Her daughter is still ill, but she's able to go to school now a few hours a day because of her treatment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, normally it would have taken one, two, three, four, five, on average five years to get a diagnosis. And so I think I've encountered a lot of people who are able to figure out, you know, what their symptoms suggest, um, get diagnosis, and and get treatment early. And and early treatment and, like, appropriate early uh, management of the disease is still the best chance you have of, um, um, if not recovery, because that's rare, um, of, you know, being able to be at 96% and to stay there and to to live a very high quality of life. That's fantastic. Well, I am so moved by the film. The film is Unrest. It is a wonderful documentary. It just as a as a from a cinematic experience. It's just a involving, intimate, um, very uh, empathetic. All all the words, all the and all the reactions you would want to have watching a a, a documentary like this. Uh, and um, it is, it's a terrific piece of work, and congratulations to you, Jennifer Brea, for your work here as a filmmaker, but so also much. your continuing work as someone who is a, a very strong advocate for what is happening to estimates as, as 17 million people worldwide. Is that what I recall from Yeah, 17 film? million worldwide and um, a million in the U.S. Millions in the U.S., for, uh, regarding a disease that is, until only recently, being taken seriously by the medical establishment uh, and getting better, but certainly not enough, and funding, you absolutely woefully inadequate funding, and uh, but hopefully, hopefully that will get better as well. So I just want to thank you again for uh, finding time to be uh, here on Film School and continued success uh, and, t- and carrying this film and your work around the world uh, and hopefully for a, for a better future for the people who are suffering from it. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank, thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.